Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a bi-weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join our host, Jenna Kelly, as she dives into the world of attachment theory and trauma with field experts from across the nation. Hey there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and I hope this interview finds you well wherever you are listening or watching today. And I'm really excited to share this next conversation with you because it was just like sitting down with a friend because he is a friend, he's a colleague, and he's just a very well-rounded, thoughtful clinician, trainer. He's also the executive director of the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. And we're dedicating this episode to a very special leader within Chaddock, Debbie Reed, our past president and CEO, who unfortunately passed away recently. And so she was kind of the inspiration for us talking about attachment styles in the workplace, which is something that research has not paid enough attention to. It's it's starting to get more traction in the last few years, but that's why I'm glad that him and I just have a chance to, to think about it together and how it applies to the various work dynamics and to the outcomes of our work. And we also think together about some strategies because our attachment styles are always there. They're always impacting relationships regardless of the setting. And there's always an opportunity to better understand those and to to do more healing and work on ourselves. So, so cool to sit down and talk with Josh. And like I said, with him being the executive director of the Knowledge Center, the Knowledge Center has so many cool offerings that's all about supporting professional growth in attachment-based and in trauma-informed work. There's also a conference coming up on campus at the Knowledge Center, um, which is in Quincy, Illinois. It's the the third annual trauma-informed relationship-focused schools conference on March 6th and 7th. So I know that's not much time by the time you're hearing this, but there's also going to be recordings available of the presentations and Michael Trout will be speaking, who's a dear friend of of Chaddock and of this podcast, who's been on many times before. Hey there, Josh. Welcome. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I know you've been a guest before with the previous host, Karen. So how does it feel to be back? It's great. Um, It's been a while and I'm excited to be here with you. And um, you've just been doing a a phenomenal job with as the new host and excited to uh, talk about today's topic. Oh, me too. I think we're going to have fun. And I know we're also going to be dedicating this to a very special leader within the Chaddock organization where you and I both work. But before we get into our topic and our dedication, one of the things, and I know we're going to be having more of a conversational style too, but that doesn't get you off the hot seat because one of the questions that I start my interviews off with all of our guests is by inviting more of them into the conversation and asking them to please share an attachment memory that feels really important to you in this moment, and especially how that relates to your work and the why of your work. So what yeah. comes to mind for you? Um, you know, I think that um, just off the top of my head, I think the thing that comes up for me is um mealtime food and um you know one of our our colleagues that that we're both connected with um 
Steve has, you know, talks about food as a mother's love. Mm -hmm. And as I think about um, my mom in particular, she did a lot of things with with collecting recipes and and having me be a part of cooking and and I have a lot of memories of of doing that and one of my favorite memories is when I was very young I had a summer project where she had me mail off letters to different family members um, across the country asking for their favorite recipe and then I created my own cookbook as a little kid and I drew my own little illustrations as like a six-year-old. And um, part of that project was as, as those recipes came in, her and I cooked them together. Mm. Um, and so, you know, as I've grown into uh, an adult and, you know, food and, and cooking for, for uh, others is, is really important and a, a fun thing for me. Um, and so, yeah, just that, that sacred space of sitting around a table and, um, you know, kind of pouring a little bit of yourself into the recipe, uh, mm-hmm. as much as you are spices and anything else that there's, there's care and concern that goes into preparing a meal for your loved ones. Yes. Thank you for sharing that really loving memory with your mom and Steve Zolak is, is who you're referring to just in case our listeners are, are curious. We have a, a previous episode with, with him as well, where, yeah. where he is always so, so compelling to listen to. And so here you are now, you work in attachment-based organization, and we wanted to talk about the leader of our organization who recently passed away, Debbie Reed. So what do you want to say about her as we dedicate this episode to her? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that when I think about my, well, first, you know, Debbie had been uh, uh, with Chadak for almost 30 years, and I have just celebrated my 20th year here at Chadak. And so I grew up professionally here and and really got to know Debbie in a variety of ways. And most recently as as my direct supervisor, um, as the, you know, as the executive director of the Knowledge Center. Um, and so I got to know Debbie very well. And um she is a phenomenal um, leader. Um, she is a phenomenal um, visionary um, and, and being able to not just see um, the vision, be, but be able to communicate that in a way that inspires other people. And she was also a, an amazing friend and colleague um, and just human being. Mm-hmm. And she, um, she always did what was right, even if that was the hard thing to do, um, which, you know, in this day and age doesn't always feel the case. And so she, um, she led by example, and she was a true example of what uh, a servant leader is. Um, she, um, one of my one of my memories of her is um, we had a big windstorm come through and the city as a whole lost, I think it was something like over 1500 trees. And there's a lot of trees on campus. And I, I was through power lines that being down and all sorts of stuff. I was able to make it here to campus and here she was and, 
in you know outdoor wear and helping pull tree limbs uh, mm -hmm. you know and and help getting our campus back to a functioning state and she was not afraid to roll up her sleeves and um, help get the job done too and work right alongside with us and not just um, leading us and so just a, a phenomenal uh, person who um, meant a lot of things to a lot of people and she will be sorely missed as as a, a leader um, colleague and friend mm -hmm. yes and she was a big supporter of this podcast and a big proponent of doing attachment-based work before it was really a thing and i think that that speaks to what you were saying about being a visionary um you know attachment-based work is even though attachment research has been around for a long time you know the older school ways of doing things and in, in a much more kind of rigid behaviorally based way was the way that things were often being done when she took over as le as leader of, of Chaddock and she wanted to do things differently. And I think she created that both within the organization and in the work that Chaddock does and her leadership style, which we're going to, so our conversation today is going to be about attachment styles in the workplace. And so the attachment style of a leader matters. Mm -hmm. And so I would venture to say that Debbie probably was a securely attached individual there is some research that says that leaders who are securely attached tend to be more transformational. They tend to be great visionaries. So I think we're all lucky to, to have had her presence and will continue to feel her presence in this podcast and all the work that we're doing. Mm. So let's get into our topic. I found this quote um, in some, you know, I was trying to really see what what research is out there about attachment styles in the workplace. And I found this, this quote from Cindy Hazan and Philip Shaber, who were some of the uh, first to really look at this topic back in 1990. And there's a quote that says, just as studies of love generally ignore its relation to work, studies of work generally tend to ignore its relation to love. And so when we talk about attachment, you know, there, we often, I mean, so much, including on this podcast, but just in general, we think about it in terms of parenting and caregiving. We, there's a lot of research on that. We think about it in terms of romantic relationships and maybe even friendships. And again, there's a lot of uh, research on that as well, but there's not as much on the workplace. And there is more that has, has come out in the last, you know, few years. So that's exciting. But I think it's such an important, you know, inquiry for us all to really think about the way attachment styles show up at work. So let's do like a quick little like attachment 101. So I know a lot of our listeners and viewers are very well versed in attachment, but we could have some some new listeners. I hope we do. And we could also just have some people that would appreciate a refresher. So about 50% of the population are classified as securely attached individuals, which is usually the result of their primary caregiving being very trusting and consistent. And so the, 
securely attached individuals then see often see the world as very trusting and good. And not to say that it's all perfect and Pollyanna, but then they're able to express their needs. They're able to form close and secure relationships. And very importantly, they're able to receive their needs being met. They're able to trust that that's going to happen and receive proximity and tenderness and closeness. And then the other approximate 50% of the population is classified as insecurely attached. And insecurely attached has different subtypes. And so as children, this is often either what we call anxious ambivalent, where their caregiving, primary caregiving was often very inconsistent. And so maybe sometimes the caregiver was very uh, attentive to their needs, but other times maybe rejecting. And so this young child can't make sense of it. And so the and, and often there can be some role reversal going on, too, where they're then tending to the parent or caregiver's needs. And so as adults, you know, they then bring this what we may call later on preoccupied um, classification where they have, you know, have a, they seek closeness and they want closeness. They're very often afraid of abandonment and, but they have actually receiving that closeness can feel very threatening because they, they haven't gotten to trust as, as securely individuals have that, that you're really going to be here to meet my needs. And then we have, um, the other insecure category, which is avoidant and later as adults can become what we call dismissive and avoidant individuals often experience their primary caregiving to be um, just that very dismissive of their needs. They may have had a parent or caregiver that may have provided those essential needs like here's your food and your basic care, but especially that emotional closeness and meeting those emotional needs. And so that individual has often learned that um, a just to keep their caregiver comfortable, that they're not going to express their emotional needs because they figured out that makes this person a little uncomfortable. And um, and so they become very self-reliant um, because they they have learned that they can't always trust others to meet those emotional needs. And then there's a third subtype that I don't think we're going to talk as much about today. Not that it can't show up in the workplace, but that's disorganized. And that's often when there's been extreme abuse and, and trauma. And later on may become in the adult classification classification of what we call unresolved. So. Let's talk about, and I also want to say that that there's always an opportunity for those with a more insecure type to go on to experience what we call earned or learned security through later relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, and maybe even in the workplace, because there are so many relationships in the workplace. Uh, you know, and just hearing you that you've been at Chaddock for 20 years, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of relational growth um, at Chaddock. So let's talk about how do we think these different styles show up, Josh? Um, let's let's start with secure individuals. What do we think? Well, you know, when I think about, you know, how does this show up, you know, I, I think that again, you know, when we think think about tenure, you know, and and just the um I I would think that it shows up differently depending upon how long somebody's been here, right? So if you're 
depending upon your attachment style, in the beginning, you may feel more comfortable because you don't, the relationships haven't really formed yet. They're not that more intimate. But when you have been with an organization or with a specific employer for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you end up spending, um, you know, sometimes I spend more time with people that I work with than people in my own family. If I think about, you know, the 40-hour work week and how closely I might be working with somebody um, that, you know, I think that that's the first thought that comes into my mind is I wonder how our attachment styles might manifest themselves differently, um, or at least maybe those behaviors or those patterns um, show up differently, depending upon how long you've been with an organization or with the same employer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And I think there's that opportunity to move towards security if you're an individual who maybe wasn't secure when you started by the different workplace relationships that you formed. And there's also an opportunity to maybe perpetuate insecure styles as well. And so, you know, we know, like I said, from the research that is out there that secure individuals tend to report higher levels of job satisfaction. They tend to be more creative, more confident. They may experience less burnout. They work well with others. They form those those close relationships and they value relationships. Um, And what's interesting though, this was back in 1990, so I don't know if this is true or just a one-off, but when they looked at different occupational categories, that teachers were more likely to have a secure classification. Mm. And, you know, makes sense that that they're then in a role where they're providing care to, to children and others. Yeah. No, that is, that is uh, interesting. It'd be interesting to know, like, um, or to to be able to kind of see more current research on, um, yeah, if there's different professions that um, different classifications tend to gravitate gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Um, something that you said that kind of um, stuck out. Um, it's kind of. Uh, uh, lost uh lost its way in my mind though but i think that um you know when when i think about that secure um colleague that yes that i think that their ability to um you know if we if we really kind of dig down into um, even like object relations theory and just being able to to recognize and differentiate between all good and all bad, right? You know, sometimes I think when um, we have, um, you know, close relationships, we can, you know, if you're in an insecure uh, place, sometimes you might pedalize, you know, put somebody on a pedestal mm-hmm. uh, or just really dislike somebody. Like I can't get along with them. And you really struggle with seeing people as a whole person of being, you know, some good, some bad. And, um, and still being able to have a relationship with them and that sometimes that um, that could be a struggle. But so when I think about somebody who's secure, they have the ability to see positive qualities, negative qualities and see the whole person um, and also see that about themselves, that mm-hmm. I have strengths, I have weaknesses and that I can they're integrated. I can recognize those um, and that they have some sense or ability to. Um, be regulated and and have, you know, 
coping mechanisms and be able to self-regulate in uh, challenges or if, if maybe something that is a, a negative or a growth edge for them, they're able to um, still see themselves as a as good um, and having good qualities, even though something um, negative is being pointed out in that moment. So those yes. are some of the other things that are kind of coming up for me too, as I'm thinking about, uh, you know, what uh, somebody who might have, or who would have a secure attachment style might show up like um, in the work environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ability to receive feedback is, is also consistent with some of the research that I would, that I came across. And so, you know, our listeners might be thinking, well, wouldn't it just be wonderful if the whole world was securely attached? And, you know, I think that there is a place for, you know, there's attachment style, different attachment styles and, and different personalities and temperaments. And the way we approach our work is, is needed among any workplace, uh, any team, and, and valuing the differences, the unique differences that we all bring. And securely attached individuals are not perfect individuals either. And, and so while there may be some more, some more balance um, in and what in what they're bringing to the workplace, you know, they may also, you know, where the the preoccupied or the anxious insecure may be better at detecting threats. And that's, and that's what was also found in the research. So a secure person may, because they tend to, like I said, often expect goodness and trust from others, that there may be times that they're, that they're missing things. There may be times where maybe they're just like a little too easygoing. Um, so want to say that there's, there's strengths and difficulties for all of the categories. Well, and, and I think it's so important um, for for anybody who's doing attachment based work and working with others and that it, you know, that regardless of your attachment classification, it's that's not it's not a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's not saying that something's wrong or you're broken by any means. It's mm -hmm. just a way that we've been able to understand and, and identify that there are um specific ways or um strategies adaptations to the way that human beings approach relationships that we've been able to say here are some categories to help us understand how um this person or this person um navigates things and and some of those qualities you know uh have been categorized in the secure or anxious or avoidant and but it's not that it's bad or wrong um, uh, but it can help understanding them can help us have a deep understanding, one of ourself, regardless mm -hmm. of what classification we are, and two, a greater understanding of those around us, again, regardless of what their classification is. I think the other thing that is so important, um, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners to the podcast already know this, but I think that people who aren't steeped in attachment work, you know, say the, and, and it's, it's almost like a, a pet peeve of mine when someone says, oh, they're attached or detached. Like they, you know, they use language that's very kind of binary mm -hmm. where really attachment is such a spectrum. 
it's it's you're not you don't either have an attachment or not have an attachment um you know we you can there's there's a lot of um gradient to that uh, you know to the different attachment styles and how they manifest themselves in our behaviors and and in our approaches um and so you know i think that it's also important to remember that um you can be attached and have some avoidant or anxious um tendencies absolutely um that maybe if under certain stressful situations or um you know certain things events could happen that could kind of push you into that uh to a different category um for that period of time and so um I think, again, I think it's just a wonderful tool for us to have a deeper understanding of who we are as human beings and how we connect mm-hmm. to each other as human beings um, as a tool to to gain deeper understanding and empathy and compassion for ourselves and for um, those who are around us. Yes. Yes. I think that's a really important thread of this conversation is that the more we understand about our own styles and recognizing, like you said, these are not fixed. They can be very contextual. They can be very dependent on who we're in relationship with. Um, But the more we understand about ourselves and the more we understand that about others, it's going to strengthen the way we work together. And when we are working together well, then the work that we're doing with others especially a lot of us listening are in the helping field or the teaching field. And so then this impacts the work that we're doing with others. And that's the final outcome that we really need to be thinking about. Why does this matter? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, that, you know, one of Chaddock's tenants is that um, when we approach the treatment process is that the the relationship formed between parent child, that relationship is our primary client. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why attachment based work is so important to us. And that it helps us understand how those connections are formed, how they're maintained. um, uh, When, when trauma might disrupt that process, that universal process of us connecting to, um, to our, to our parents. And then, how that connection then generalizes to our other relationships as we as we grow older and enter into other social settings, whether it's in, you know uh, with an employer and colleagues, or with a spouse and with our own children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the anxious ambivalent as adult may go on to be preoccupied. If that's kind of the predominant style that's showing up in the workplace, what do you think you might be more likely to see from these individuals in the workplace? So as as I'm thinking about that particular um, attachment style, you know, I think that um, some things that that you might see um, are are individuals that really are more focused on the relationship piece of the work environment than the work itself. Um, They're really looking for um, seeking out approval, um, uh, really struggle with um, hearing feedback, even if it's constructive, even if it's warranted. 
um, and may have those really close relationships, may have that that work spouse, um, so to speak, where they, um, you know, again, are really prioritizing um, the relationships, uh, the connections, but really it's, it's that it's, it's feeding that inner deeper, um, drive to have that connection and approval. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily that relationships are more important, but they're, they're trying to meet that need internally, Mm -hmm. um, to have that, um, for some level of regulation and connection, um, and and for those of us who are you know working with individuals like that, that could be frustrating because that you know they may be more focused on what's the most recent gossip. Um, they're always kind of floating around the office, and they're you know having more conversations than um, focusing on a, a specific project. Um, and, uh, you know, as a supervisor, they may show up to supervision sessions talking more about, um, you know, what's going on in their life uh, versus actual work projects and statuses and um, needs that they have uh, to be able to to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if there was ever a classification of somebody who's going to have a work spouse, it would probably be preoccupied, although it can, you know, anybody can have a work spouse. I think that just speaks to the power of what's happening in relationships at work. We have works. Some of us have work spouses. We have we have supervisors. We have all of these things, like you said, that can sometimes then trigger those those internal attachment wounds that we're trying to figure out how to get those needs met. And sometimes that can take our eye off, off the work on the, the plus side, the strengths of, of somebody who's preoccupied though, is that they do want that approval. So they can be hard workers too. They can, they can be very focused on getting that approval um, so they are working hard. They can also be really good at detecting threats because they experience that perhaps in their primary caregiving. And so they can they can be really great people to have on the team. Um, and and especially if they have good supervision, that's helping them learn and grow and reflect because they can also be very self-reflective. And we know that being reflective, especially in the helping and teaching fields, um, is really important quality, but I think all of these can, if not kind of in balance or with that ability to reflect, recognizing when maybe I need to have better boundaries. Um, so if, if all of this doesn't find a good balance, it can be a problem with boundaries. They may be checking their emails at all hours of the night because they want to be responsive. They may be more likely to people please. So and they're probably perseverating of they they send an email and then and then think about oh i should have said it this way or i should have said it that way um and and or or you know oh i didn't like how this conversation went or you know those mm-hmm. kinds of things yes well it kind of sounds like me a little bit uh-oh <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute um now i'm going to to the avoidant um yeah or if they get an email 
where I need to meet with you the next, you know, from a supervisor or even a colleague, like I need to meet with you about something the next day. If there's no context in that email. Anxiety. Yes. Yes. And I think that can be anxiety provoking for anybody, but, but you match that with somebody who leans more towards preoccupied and and that's just a perfect storm for amplified well, anxiety. Well, I think what ends up happening is, is they end up putting, um, they create the story about there being a break in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Like with, when we're talking about that, um, why that's stressful for them. It's I did something wrong. What did I do wrong? Are they mad at me? Are they disappointed at me? Has there been a break in the connection that I caused? Mm -hmm. That becomes the, because there's no context, they create the story themselves. And that's when they start replaying Oh, like, Oh, well, did this, was this it? Was this it? Um, What do I need to do to fix it? And there can almost be this, um, I don't want to say panic, but there, there's this drive to find out the answer so that it can alleviate their anxiety. About. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not to say that I don't think any of us like being micromanaged. I think preoccupied individuals may look for more reassurance from their peers, from their supervisors and from others. But actually, what was interesting in that original article that I mentioned from Hazan and Shaver is that they found that preoccupied individuals are very uh, sensitive to also feeling intruded on, which may go back to some of the research that Ainsworth found, which um, those in the anxious ambivalent, the babies in the anxious ambivalent often did have mothers that were could be intrusive. They may be intrusive at times and other times distant. And so again, what's coming up for somebody at work when you're interacting in these intimate relationships goes back to, like you said, that that fear of abandonment or maybe an implicit memory of an intrusive caregiver. And so there, there's just so much that that can happen and and there's so much healthy ways that that can be healed with the right relationships absolutely so okay so let's talk about avoidant dismissive well so if if preoccupied is focused on the relationship the dismissive is focused on the work Mm -hmm. so they're they're the person who is i'm here to work i am not here to build relationships Um, I don't want to go out after work. I don't want to talk about things. I am here to get this task done and earn my paycheck. That is a little extreme, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, their their internal motivation isn't to have relational connection. Um, They are there for um, this this reason, this this project um, and relationships. don't feel that um, that need that connection like the the anxious does, mm-hmm. um, and so they are really more driven and task oriented than as we talked with the last group where they were so much more focused on relationships, and so like in an organization like Chadwick where you know, relationships are primary. We talk a lot about the importance of relationships and connection where someone who is that dismissive may struggle in wanting to go to the company picnic or 
um, engage in relationship building or icebreakers. Icebreakers might be like the worst <laughs> thing ever to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they that that's not something that brings them a lot of pleasure and maybe even sometimes can make them feel uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. That closeness can some sometimes feel like a threat. Mm-hmm. And not to say that they, that people with a more avoidant dismissive style don't still value relationships and can't be in close relationships, but they tend to, like you said, maybe be more focused on the work. And that can be also a strength that they can have really good boundaries. They can more easily maybe turn work on and off and, and work you know, they may really value their relationships with their colleagues because work may also offer enough of a structure where I can keep these professional relationships. But if we do too much touchy-feely, you know, that that might make me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. They can also be very kind of hyper-independent, be taskmasters at getting things done. But sometimes then if it comes to collaborating, there may be times where there's challenges in that. There may be challenges with, you know, listening and trusting authority or or a supervisor. So like you said, it's just kind of this whole, whole spectrum, but important again, to understand that about the people that you work with, or if that's more of your predominant style, how is that impacting you? at work and are there opportunities for you to work on even if it's a little uncomfortable getting a little closer Mm -hmm. absolutely so i have a real world example that i'm going to bring into this of my own experience and i was um you know when i moved into a leadership role several years ago into one of chaddock's programs And where I moved from being a peer, where I had a lot of close and trusting and and relationships that I really valued, and then I moved into a leadership position in this program, Uh, and it was actually a co-leadership position. And even though I think that most of the time I am leaning towards more kind of earned and learned security, I think for any of us, when we are in a new position at work, and we are outside of our comfort zone, we may default back to some more insecure types. And so I really defaulted more into this, you know, anxious, preoccupied. I was really worried about what was going to happen to my relationships with my peers. I still wanted them to like me and approve of me. And you know, what, what does it mean if I make a decision that they don't like? And so this is kind of where I'm at. And then I'm paired with a co-leader who I have so much respect for, but, and I'm, this is just my interpretation, um, that I think her style was very much avoidant and dismissive. And those are two common, um, combination, you know, of, Preoccupied and dismissive are one of the most common pairings in romantic relationships, too. (laughs) And so I actually said when her and I were trying to navigate this co-leadership relationship, I was like, I think we need marital therapy. (laughs) So so here I am kind of leaning into this more preoccupied and with somebody who's more dismissive. So I'm not getting that reassurance. I'm probably triggering all of her stuff, too. 
And so it was just kind of a mess for a while. And not only was it a mess interpersonally, but it also impacted the team. And the research shows that as well, that when you have leaders who are insecure, then just like at home, if you have two parents that are, are you know, figuring their stuff out and there's, you know, insecurities and things going on in that, in their partnership, that is going to impact the children. And they're going to feel that no matter how much you try to present a good face, they're, they're going to feel that at a very visceral level. And so that's what happened to the team as well. So it, the research shows that the team then is more likely to experience burnout, to have a decrease in work performance, all of those things. So it was a real learning experience for me. I think I have started to get my grounding and, you know, I'm, I'm now with co-leaders who we have a very close and trusting relationship. I think that that's really helped me. Um, and I think I'm far less focused now on approval and entrusting my ability to make good decisions for the team and the program. But I also had a really good reflective supervisor that I had a place where I could take this. I had some trusted colleagues outside of my program. Um, I had a therapist, you know, all of those things because we need, you know, places to take this and process this so that we can, you know, continue that, that healing work because work is going to uncover not just the direct work that we're doing, mm -hmm. but work is going to uncover things about us that still needed attention within those workplace relationships. Well, you know, I think one of the things that um, in the clinical world, we often talk about transference and counter-transference in the context of a therapeutic relationship with a, a therapist, clinician, and a client. But we have to recognize that transference and counter-transference can happen anywhere mm -hmm. and with anybody. And, you know, that includes um, our work with our colleagues and our coworkers and being able to recognize that there are going to be times where things from our past um, are being touched upon and that we are reacting in the moment to our past versus what's happening right in front of us. And, you know, and I think that that's, you know, just wanting to emphasize that in conjunction with what you were saying of of the importance of self-awareness and self-reflection of being able to say this is this is who I am and this is how I typically navigate relationships or navigate uh, situations. This is how I show up when I'm under stress or when there's challenges and that may look different. And here are the things that you know, I know about myself and what I need uh, and how I, you know, what can be done to help support me get back to that place of, of um, you know, being able to react and respond to the present rather than maybe having that that button pushed um, from our, you know, our childhood. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And thank goodness I worked in an organization that was attachment based and so focused on relationships so that we were allowed to get a little messy and have some places where we could process it. And so I think that, you know, it, it speaks to that rupture and repair in, in attachment. And I, and I think as we start to wrap up, 
you know, thinking about what are the strategies that workplaces and individuals can employ to navigate the different attachment styles. Um, and so for me, like I said, reflective supervision and good supervision is, is one of those strategies. So, you know, that if those of you, of you who are listening are, are not receiving that, you can also seek that sometimes outside of your organizations. You know, sometimes you may have to pay for that, but you should also be advocating that I need good supervision. Um, what else, Josh, what other strategies do you think are helpful? Well, I think anything that can help us with our reflective functioning or our ability to, to have mentalization. Um, and so anything that we can do, like, you know, mindfulness would be examples mm -hmm. of that where we're, we have a greater sense of, you know, connecting our, our mind, body, and spirit, um, being able to be, um, fully present in the moment um, would be, you know, very easy example of thing, something that somebody could start today um, and, and, and starting incorporating a mindfulness practice to help them be more aware of their reactions and responses mm -hmm. um, to their internal states. Um, internal stimulus as well as external stimulus. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think especially for those who maybe lean more towards that anxious preoccupied style, mindfulness, while it may be even more difficult for those individuals at times, um, can be really important to, to practice. And I think practice too, that's an important strategy, like trying different things out in safe situations where you can try different things on for a preoccupied person that might just be practicing some boundaries of when they're going to check their emails, when they're not going to check their emails and just going a whole day of really having a good practicing with some good boundaries and, and turning that off. And what is that, what does that feel like? Um, you know, and maybe for somebody who leans more towards avoidant dismissive, you know, they, they, they go to the company barbecue, <laughs> maybe they don't stay the whole time, but they yeah. practice that. Um, so, so yeah, any other, any other thoughts on strategies? Um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate your, your thought about, you know, just, um, practicing and, and recognizing that it doesn't have to be perfect, you know? So I think maybe setting expectations for yourself, um, and really thinking about why you're doing, you know, what is it that you want that outcome to be? What are you wanting to be different? Mm -hmm. um, and um, just taking some time to reflecting on that, like, what do you want the outcome of doing some different strategies to be can help you pick that strategy um, and, and do activities that will help um move you in that direction, move the dial in the, in the way that you're hoping for. So I think the other thing for me is, is what do you want things? Do you want things to look different? And two, how might they look different? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And ultimately thinking about that, how that impacts the direct work that you're doing, whether you're in a leadership role or doing direct service with children and families or teaching you know, because all of all of those wounds um, are going to get potentially triggered as well in those roles. So when we look at this kind of systemically all the way from from our relationships 
within our workplace down to those direct roles, it's it's going to to have make an impact no matter no matter how we're looking at it. And Dr. David Wallen has a book, Attachment and Psychotherapy, and he was a past guest with our previous host, Karen. So that might be a great episode that we can also link that really talks more about the way the therapist attachment style can impact the therapeutic relationship and alliance and the things that may be coming up for them when they're in those um, therapy relationships. So absolutely. Yeah. Transcends all in all places. So that's why I think it's so exciting that we're talking about it in the workplace. I hope that we, there continues to be more research coming out on the way this impacts the workplace. It's a, it's just an important way for us to understand um, ourselves and others. So anything you want to end us on, Josh, this is, this has been a really fun conversation. Um, you know, I think that, um, just touching on what you talked about rupture and repair is that, um, life is messy. Relationships are messy. Um, and that there are going to be times where there is rupture. And I think that as, um, regardless of what role we're in, you know, I think trying to work towards that repair and understanding, having compassion for ourselves and for others and finding ways to repair those moments um, and, and having that relational connection is, is so important. And so just recognizing the, the importance that when there's a rupture that we, that all of us work to repairing. That. Yes. Yes. And I think that's, again, a chance for us to work it out in real time, because as children, we may not have experienced enough successful repair. And in the workplace, again, especially if you're working somewhere that really values attachment and repair, you can have the opportunity to do that. And maybe a dismissive person might say, well, I don't need repair. Or I'm fine. I'm good. And a preoccupied may be more likely to get so preoccupied that maybe they can't even really step back enough to be part of that repair. But if you have individuals that can help support that, again, it might be a supervisor or a different, you know, trusted colleague, you know, there's different practices. We've practiced, we've done circle practices within Chaddock when there've been ruptures, you know, so that's something we can link in our show notes as well. If you're wanting to learn more about circle practice. So yeah, we'll link anything we can, we can think of that will be helpful resources. And, you know, like I said, I just hope we keep talking and learning about, about this in the workplace so that we can keep doing amazing work with the clients and, and children that that we're ultimately hoping to support. So thank you so much, Josh. This was, this was really fun. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Take care. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and share with your friends and coworkers. You can also connect and chat with other listeners through our Facebook group. On behalf of all of us here at the Knowledge Center, thanks for tuning in.